Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is called Turn, Turn, Turn. It's a guest essay by Lindsay Crittenden, author of the book The Water Will Hold You, A Skeptic Learns to Pray, from the year 2007, and another book called The View from Below, Stories. Lindsay Crittenden blogs regularly for Good Letters, the image blog. She lives in San Francisco and teaches at UC Berkeley Extension. Her essay is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, March 14, 2010, the fourth Sunday in Lent. I've always identified with the prodigal son's elder brother. He got a bad rap the outsider in the family triangle, the dull responsible one next to the gimme-gimme attention-getting squanderer. I've secretly cheered for the elder brother's anger at coming home from another day of dutiful work in the field only to hear music and dancing. And I have felt, I have known, his surge of righteous indignation. As a girl, I watch my brother get away time and time again with mischief, troublemaking, disobedience. I heard my parents explain to him why it was wrong to throw water balloons at cars or vandalize my dollhouse or steal coins from my father's top drawer. I listened to him say, I won't do it again. And I heard my parents say, okay. Of course, he did do it again. Perhaps not the same exact behavior but the next step in what felt like an inevitable downward spiral. Crashing my parents' car, coming home drunk, cutting class, smoking pot. By age 19, my brother was a full-fledged drug addict, insisting to me that smoking crack was quote-unquote no big deal. It was 1986, and, he insisted, the crack academic epidemic was largely a CIA plot to keep down inner-city blacks. I can quit any time, he told me over beer and burgers one night in the Old Town Saloon in New York City. Don't worry, babe, I can handle it. He couldn't handle it, of course. He hit bottom once, twice, three times. Each hit bottoming further and further. He went in and out of drug rehab. And then, in the early hours of January 8, 1994, he drove away without paying for a vial of crack and was shot in the head. He died later that day at 3.08 p.m. During my brother's decline, my parents played the role of what the self-help literature and 12-step programs call classic enablers. They continued to give him money and co-sign leases and bail him out of jail. While I got my first salary job and paid my rent and deposited my paltry $20 of savings from each paycheck and lived on Chinese food and brown bag lunches, my brother zigzagged from apartment to apartment, job to job, girlfriend to girlfriend. He was all drama and no and excitement. I was all drudge and responsibility. Prodigal, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, means to give extravagant expenditure, recklessly waste 
helpful of one's property or means. The OED cites the first usage to the early 16th century. But Jesus, of course, spoke in Aramaic, and the Gospel of Luke was written in Greek. While the phrase prodigal son has become a shorthand for the parable told in Luke chapter 15, the word prodigal does not appear in the New Revised Standard Version or the King James Version, or even the earliest translation, the Wycliffe Bible of the late 14th century. The NRSV says that the younger son, quote, squandered his property in dissolute living. The King James uses riotous as the key adjective. For dissolute, riotous, the Greek original word would have been asotos, which comes from the Greek verb sozo, to save. Put that nullifying Greek ah at the front and you get unsavable. This lends a whole new meaning. It's not just that the wasteful son squandered his inheritance and engaged in wasteful living, but that he did so as if beyond the need of salvation. As my brother once told me, I can handle it. For years, my identification with the older son in Jesus' parable troubled me. The story so obviously comes out on the side of God's forgiveness and rejoicing over the return of the prodigal. The elder brother seems to be the spoiler, the whiner, the foil to the father's final words. We had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. What kind of petty older sister was I to keep a tally under such circumstances? There's a key difference, of course. The prodigal son admits his error and does so sincerely. He determines, as the Gospel of Luke says, to get up and go out to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. The father has not yet heard the son's apology, but he doesn't even need to. The son has made the change, admitted the need. And the father sees him from afar and runs to greet him, in a description that has always reminded me of Melanie spotting Ashley's return to Tara. My brother finally admitted his powerlessness in the face of drugs, but for most of, but for most of the squandering and bailing out, he and my parents colluded in a kind of sick and tragic game. The lesson of the parable doesn't need the elder brother. Jesus has already told about the lost sheep and the lost coins. And just to make sure that the tax collectors, sinners, Pharisees, and scribes get the message, he ups the ante to the lost son. He didn't need to include verses 25 to 31. The story would still carry weight without the elder brother's resentment. So why include it? Why have the elder brother at all? Here's my idea. God sees all sides. God understands how the elder brother would feel. Yes, the elder brother misses the point, but he too is the father's son. When the father speaks his reassurance, 
Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. Jesus makes two points. Anger is a human, understandable reaction, but it's not the end of the story. The elder brother may not have been given a young goat, but he's had his father's constancy all along. His transformation isn't as dramatic or as marked as his younger brother's, but that doesn't mean it hasn't occurred. Being the dutiful child is a burden. In some ways, the role of the prodigal is easier in its spectacular crash and burn. To slog, out, to slog away out of duty and purpose doesn't make for high drama. And yet, to wake up from mere duty and realize one day that you've had love all along, that too can turn lives around. A few weeks ago, I went to see the movie Crazy Heart, the movie for which Jeff Bridges might get an Oscar this coming Sunday night for his portrayal of Bad Blake, the washed-up country musician who finds love, loses love, hits bottom, and gets redemption. This being a Hollywood movie, when he decides to get sober, four months at an upscale facility does the trick. He sits in a circle under the cottonwood trees with other men and admits his alcoholism. And then the very next scene shows Robert Duvall coming to pick him up from rehab and Bad's announcement that he's all better. Uh-oh, I thought, here we go. I spent the rest of the movie waiting for the relapse, but it never came. And therein, the movie lost me. Much as movies about writers show an actor frowning in attractive concentration over an ink block page or an, eight, an old royal typewriter or a sleek laptop, music swelling and inspiration streaming in the window or flickering from lamplight, and then voila, the completed work, movies simplify rehab. After all, DTs and relapses would slow down the narrative arc. Like Bad Blake, the prodigal son hits bottom once and sees the error of his ways. He finds himself reduced to feeding swine, the lowest of the low in job hierarchy in that world. The shift comes when the text says in verse 17, he came to himself, indicating an aha moment, a turn, a realization. Metanoia, which in the Greek means repentance. Aristotle used this same term in his poetics to refer to a rhetorical device of correction, a plot point that turns around the narrative. According to Wikipedia, the word is also used in psychology to refer to the process of experiencing a psychotic breakdown and subsequent positive psychological rebuilding or healing. All of which apply to the parable, to the movie Crazy Heart, and to the neatness of stories as opposed to real life. Unsavable becomes, through metanoia, the stuff of transformation and celebration. Not to say that it can't happen in real life, but it's rarely one step or so linear. In the weeks following my brother's death, I heard a lot of well-meaning words of intended comfort. It's God's will, some said. 
while others told me that my brother was in a better place and no longer suffering. Neither of these comforted me. In fact, they often made me want to scream. What did comfort me was what a recovering addict friend of my brother's told me one day. He said he was on a path. As long as he kept using, this is where he was going. At first, his words seemed harsh, their implication unpalatable. Was he suggesting that my brother was unsavable? No, I don't think so. But I do think he was saying that until my brother, in the words of Luke, came to himself, and, I'll add, until he stayed there, there was nothing anyone else could do. I've had to make a turn, too, away from anger and resentment. We don't know how the elder brother responds, if he joins the party or if he storms off in a huff. But the implication seems clear. The love of the Father is big enough for both. Turn, turn, turn. A guest essay by author Lindsay Crittenton. For books this week, I review Michael Pollan, Food Rules, an Eater's Manual, New York Penguin Books, 2009, 140 pages. This tiny treatise is so small that it barely qualifies as a book, but it carries a big message that could revolutionize your diet. Michael Pollan is a professor of journalism at the University of California, Berkeley. And with his two best-selling books, The Omnivore's Dilemma, Dilemma, 2006, and In Defense of Food, 2008, he's established himself as a worthy food guru. In the first book, he considered the ecological and ethical dimensions of our eating choices, or as one reviewer put it, balancing the demands of appetite and conscience. The mantra of the latter book, In Defense of Food, contains seven words and three rules. Eat food, not too much, mainly plants. In the introduction to his newest book, Poland observes how the simple act of eating has become way too complex. We rely on experts to advise us. We try to pronounce five-syllable words on food labels and we wonder which fats are good or bad. This is both unfortunate and unnecessary, for in his decades of food study, according to Poland, the picture got simpler the deeper I went. Two empirical facts are indisputable. First, people who eat a Western diet loaded with sugar, fat, and salt and highly processed foods experience far higher rates of preventable diseases. And secondly, whereas people who eat any number of widely different traditional diets are healthier. The bottom line, says Poland, is to move from the first category to the second. You can do this by following those seven little words from In Defense of Food. Those seven words provide a three-part structure for Poland's newest how-to book. 
To become a healthy and happy eater, Poland gives 64 rules for eating. What should you eat? Eat food. In other words, don't eat highly processed, edible food-like substances, industrial novelties, or foodish process products with wordoids like light, L-I-T-E. And so, for example, rule number seven. Avoid food products containing ingredients that a third grader can't pronounce. Or rule number 19, if it came from a plant, eat it. If it was made in a plant, don't. Or rule 21, it's not food if called by the same name in every language. Big Mac, Cheetos, or Pringles. And then secondly, what kind of food should we eat? mainly plants. And so rule number 36, don't eat breakfast cereals that change the color of their milk. And how should we eat? Not too much. Rule 44, pay more, eat less. Or rule 57, don't get your fuel from the same place your car does. And rule number 60, treat treats as treats. Whatever you do, says Poland, don't obsess about food. Consistency and everyday practices are more important than perfection. And so his very last number, Rule 64, it's okay to break the rules once in a while. Michael Poland, Food Rules, an Eater's Manual. For film this week, I reviewed Departures, a movie from Japan. Right after young Diago landed his dream job as a cellist, the orchestra dissolved. His loving wife agrees to leave the big city and return to their provincial town, where Diego answers a want ad for, quote, Departures NK. He thought it was for a travel agency, but because of a misspelling, the ad should have read departed. And the NK stands for Nokanshi, Japanese, Japan's version of an undertaker, who, through a carefully choreographed ceremony, prepares the body of the deceased in front of the bereaved family. At first, he is repulsed and both friends and his wife urge him to get a so-called real job that's not so socially embarrassing. But through the course of the film, Diego learns a vocation filled with its own artistry, tenderness, gratitude, and life itself. The film invites comparisons with Western and distinctly Christian treatments of death. Departures has won numerous film festival awards, including an Academy Award for Best Foreign Film. It's in Japanese with English subtitles. And finally, for the fourth Sunday in Lent for poetry this week, we've posted a poem by Sylvia Plath. Sylvia Plath lived from 1932 to 1963. It's called A Better Resurrection. I have no wit 
I have no words, no tears. My heart within me, like a stone, is numb too much for hopes or fears. Look right, look left, I dwell alone. A lift my eyes, but dimmed with grief, no everlasting hills I see. My life is like the falling leaf. O oh, Jesus, quicken me. Sylvia Plath, A Better Resurrection. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, March 14th, 2010, the third Sunday in Lent.